Hello and welcome to another Nordea Thematics podcast. I'm Johan Trokme and with me here in the studio I have Victor Sonnebeck. Great to be here, Victor. As always, great to be here. And we have this new podcast on the topic of the ongoing energy crisis. Do you see people checking their apps on their phones for hourly electricity prices? Maybe keeping track of wind speeds? Starting their washing machines at night before going to bed to save some money on their electricity bills? I think it's uh, fair to say that when we get into the office, the first thing after saying hello or after saying good morning is, is typically colleagues pointing out some deviations in the electricity price, either just complaining by the coffee machine that, that they're too high, or even sometimes the, the wind is blowing as much as it should be down in Denmark, electricity prices having dropped and uh, actually reaching negative levels up here in the Nordics. So it's it's uh, a lot's happening and uh, a lot of things uh, affecting our everyday life. We have just added a layer of insulation in the attic of our house at home, and I have uh, plowed through an exceptionally boring technical manual for our heating pump system to see how I reduce the heating settings a notch at home to also conserve electricity a bit. So uh, upgrading the, the technical aspect as well. Follow the numbers. Anything that we need to do, right? Yeah, and uh, I can just mention for, for myself uh, I thought it was bad enough with the power-hungry AC <laughs> during the, the uh, all too, uh, too warm summer months. But you know, of course with winter coming up and with electricity prices being what they are, this is uh, typically a, a rather large headache for uh, not least companies, but for a lot of people when it comes to anything from you know heating your house or, or these days charging your, your car as well. So the point is that this is affecting everyone, all of us as individuals, companies, society, and the magnitude of the electricity price hikes that we've seen has been shocking. We're talking 500%, maybe in some cases even 1,000% from a year ago. So we really notice all of this, and we will notice it even more in our wallets come this winter. And we put out a new Nordioni Mind report, this time about this energy crisis. We've chosen the title Nordic Energy Supply. And what we wanted with this was to explore why the crisis, what our Nordic electricity system looks like, and also, obviously, how we could perhaps find a way out of this crisis going forward. And uh, not the least in all of this, how is our system up here in the Nordics connected to the system in Europe? And just trying our best to make some sense of all this. And I don't know, should we just start off with how it looks in the Nordics? I think that's a good place to start. I think we can pat ourselves on the back somewhat uh, with starting off and, and saying that the Nordic electricity system is quite cheap in terms of, of cost per produced unit. And it's it's uh, very efficient and, and very clean as well. I mean, we don't really rely at all on fossil fuels anymore up here in the Nordics. And we've seen, uh, you know, massive build-outs uh, or build-outs of, of nuclear power quite some time. Not in the recent decades, but before that. And we've also been adding a lot of uh, hydropower over the years, which is one of the main uh, sources of electricity in the Nordics, as well as in recent years, building tremendous amounts of wind power, which, of course, the Nordic region is quite suitable for. And, you know, from similar start as the rest of Europe going way back, let's say in the 1950s or 60s or 70s, but with very good prospects for for hydropower for a long long time in the Nordics. Uh, We've seen a continuous decline in all Nordic countries when it comes to CO2 emissions in our power generation. So just looking from the the kind of cleanliness of the electricity production in the Nordics, we are among the the top ones in the European region. And before we go a little bit into how our Nordic region's electricity system is connected to Europe, we should also explain a little bit how the system actually works. We felt when writing a report like this that part of the value in such report might be also helping readers get a sort of basic understanding of how the system works, how prices are set and what the needs are on the system. And I I guess uh, an obvious place to start is to just highlight that electricity as such cannot be stored. And grid stability is crucial because you 
you produce the electricity in a power plant and then it needs to be transmitted to where the end user is, where the electricity is actually needed. And the frequency in the electric power grid needs to be kept very, very close to 50 hertz, meaning that you need to preserve this stability to avoid potential blackouts or even damage to electrical equipment which is attached to the grid. So grid stability cannot be, I guess, emphasized enough. is really, really crucial for the system to work properly. We will get further into this in the podcast, but, but just to, to briefly mention that you know, to try to highlight some of the, the properties of an electrical grid. You mentioned that there needs to be an equilibrium. Just physically, there needs to be this equilibrium in that any energy that is produced and added to the electrical grid needs somewhere to go. Any energy that, you know, you, you want to turn on a, a light, for example, well, that light will require electricity and that needs to come from somewhere. And that's not stored in the grid. It needs to be produced. So so talking about grid stability, one point of it is, you know, the, the voltage across the electricity system. It, it's about the, the frequency, but it's also about uh, the variability in electricity demand and things happening to electrical grid. And this could be, you know, in, in the milliseconds, let's say that there's a lightning strike or something is disconnected or, or anything like that. Uh, but it's also important to note that we're talking about grid stability over a longer period of time. So, so it could be anything from one of the famous cases of, of uh, people in the UK watching a football final. And then uh, when the halftime whistle blows, everyone uh, walks to their kitchen to, to put on a kettle of water to boil some tea. And yeah. of course, that immense spike in electricity needs to come from somewhere. So in this complicated system could make it a bit easier and say that you need some type of, of predictable power source. So typically, you would talk about baseload power. So this could be hydropower or nuclear power, something that is quite controllable and quite predictable in, in how much output you're going to get. So grid stability is about always being able to match the actual energy demand. Mm. And then on the energy demand side, it varies quite a bit over a day. During the night, we, we use less electricity than we do during, during daytime, but also from week to week or from month to month or depending on the season of the year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we use more electricity to, to heat up our homes uh, during the winter months than, than we do in summer, for example. And then we need to be able to cope with if there are changes to demand, both, as you say, over the year for different seasons, or if there are sudden changes, if something goes wrong, or if there is this urge by half the population watching that game to actually brew themselves a cup of tea at the same point in time. This is where it gets quite interesting when it comes to, to the development in the electrical system, especially in the Nordics, with that a large share now of our electricity comes from wind power. And if you take, take European or, or a global perspective, an increasing share comes from solar power. And what's happening is that you're introducing a source of uncertainty here. Because no matter how, how much we like our local news uh, report or, or meteorologist, it's quite hard to predict when it's going to be cloudy or, or when the wind's going to blow or not. In the notion then of grid stability, it becomes increasingly important to be able to keep up with demand surges or keep up with you know periods of low wind or, or a lot of clouds in the sky when we are relying much more on, on, for example, the renewable energy sources. And here in the Nordic region, the amount of what you call base load power, predictable planned electric power generation that is available has shrunk. Most of the coal-fired power capacity that we've had in the Nordic region is gone, has been phased out. Uh, Denmark was the country which really stood out here in having a lot of it if we look 30 years ago from today. And in the case of Sweden, at the peak, Sweden had 12 operational nuclear reactors being built since 1973 through 1985. But in the 1999 to 2020 period, over a period of just over 20 years, Sweden has actually decommissioned six of those 12 reactors. So half of the number of reactors are gone. This has been done over a time period where new capacity being added to the system has not even close to matched the capacity that was removed by the closure of of these uh, reactors. There's no nuclear power in Denmark or in Norway. In Finland, there is significant nuclear power and they have not, the Finns, who also put in place their nuclear capacity in the 70s and early 80s, not yet decommissioned any nuclear power plant, but they had three 
planned new reactor projects, of which one is still towards on the way towards completion and planned to become operational in December this year. But the other two reactor projects, which were in the pipeline, have been cancelled. Both, I guess, to a great degree, because there have been such challenges with the Olkilu Water 3 reactor project becoming so much more expensive and taking so much longer than planned, but also because one of the two additional projects which have been cancelled was to be uh, having as an equity owner and also a supplier, uh, Russian Rosatom. And that contract was cancelled pretty much immediately after the 24th of February when Russia invaded Ukraine for pretty obvious reasons. Yeah, putting it mildly, it's probably not one of the counterparties you would like to have such an infrastructure project. Indeed. And when it comes to talking about electricity, of course, prices has been, been top of mind for a lot of us. And just then mentioned that this is determined on an electricity market and has to do with supply and demand. And very simplified, it, it's set for each price area. So, so in Sweden, we're talking about the, the four price areas, SE1, 2, 3, and 4. And then it's set according to demand affected by economic activity, season, and, and of course, the time of day. And of course, the supply is affected by, for example, is the wind blowing? So how is the weather? But it's also determined from, which is a large source of electricity in, in, in Sweden, at least, hydropower. So if you have low reservoir levels, then of course, that might be a hindrance in the, on the supply side. Uh, but in addition to this, transmission capacity, because of course, electrical grid isn't operating in a vacuum. So these different price areas are connected to each other, the electrical grid, and the transmission capacity between the grids, of course, works to determine the supply. Simply put, if, if, if you're at max capacity for these transmission lines, you simply can't transmit any more electricity. And it has to do, of course, with, with fuel costs or plant uptime and, and many other factors. But a very important note here is that the electricity price in each price area, in each electrical region, is determined by the marginal price of production. So determined by the price of producing, you could say, the last kilowatt electricity. And that is a very important point. And I think therefore, I'm going to take a risk here of becoming a little bit technical. Uh, Just bear with me and take a deep breath. And I promise I'm not going to digress. But I think a good reason to sort of just explore this, at least to some degree, is that we get a lot of questions. I mean, I get a lot of questions at work and I get a lot of questions from friends. How on earth can electricity prices in our Nordic electricity system, Finland or in Norway or in Sweden, be so high when we don't use Russian gas? And and that is, I think, a very fair question. And from what you just described, Victor, I mean, with transmission of electricity in the system also cross-border happening, this is a hint to as to why this is the case. But in order to understand it, I think if I just try and explain very briefly how prices are determined for electricity in the Nordic region and in Europe. There is an exchange called Nord Pool. And at that exchange, the price of electricity is determined for each of these price areas that you mentioned one day in advance. So from all the players in the electricity market, the suppliers and the consumers of electricity, bids and offers for electricity for each specific hour for the following day are all submitted to Nordpol to the exchange with a deadline of 12 o'clock. Central European time. After that deadline has been passed, the supply and the demand for electricity is aggregated and anonymized. So all the bidders and all the suppliers, all the demand and all the supplies added up without anybody knowing who is demanding what or prepared to supply what. And that creates a supply curve and a demand curve for electricity in each area for each hour the following day. Price for electricity for each hour becomes the equilibrium price, where the total supply meets the total demand. And then that is the price that everyone in that price area will have to pay for the electricity they take delivery of during that hour. So there's no differentiation of the price, but that equilibrium price will be the one that is paid by everyone. And that is the price, as you said, that always corresponds to what was the source 
of power generation needed to create that final kilowatt hour of electricity in that price area to make sure that all the demand was actually met by supply. And typically here is where you would find this effect of you know the marginal production of electricity you know, have heavy effect on the price because simply put when the wind is blowing and a wind turbine starts spinning it does so at quite a low cost. Of course you have the cost of replacement of parts things like that but compared to having to start burning gas when gas is at a uh, has had a supply shock uh, where we don't get as much gas from Russia as we had, uh, have done in the past. What you're going to see is the gas price effectively affecting all of the different, uh, uh, not all of them, but, but many of the different price regions uh, when it comes to electricity in Europe. And here is where we get into us in the Nordics, and especially Norway in this case, having a high amount of, of what we would call baseload power, for example, hydropower. So should we not then be able to produce a lot of electricity and keep it at a low price? Well, that doesn't really work because we are interconnected with the rest of Europe. So in the case of the Nordics, we're connected in our system with the UK, the Netherlands, Germany, Poland, Estonia and Lithuania. And electricity flows across these borders. So when there is an increased demand in, say, Lithuania, well, electricity is going to flow to Lithuania from the Nordics. And looking at the figures, you know, the, the net exports from, from the Nordics, on an average month, looking at, at data from the past few years, the Nordics could expect to export some 9, nine or 10% of the total produced electricity. And one question that also tends to pop up, and which did indeed pop up during the recent Swedish uh, general election in September this year, is, well, couldn't we ignore this and just keep pricing in each country? for that country alone? And the answer to that question is no, it's not really an option because all EU member states, according to EU law, have to make at least 70% of their electricity output available to the market. That is, of course, subject to what capacity there is to transmit electricity through cross-border transmission links. But formally speaking, it needs to be made available, the majority, to other countries, your neighbouring countries. And the EU has a target for a 15% level of interconnection between the member states, and that target was very recently raised from previously 10%. So there is clearly a very strong drive from the EU side as well to ensure that there is an electricity market which is European so that there is an optimization across Europe. Looking then at, uh, again, the high gas prices. So so very concretely, high gas prices from drastically reduced Russian gas imports to Europe, they are spilling over into higher electricity prices, not only locally where, it's, where, where they use a lot of gas in order to produce their electricity, but also in our market in the Nordics due to this interconnection. Uh, and the interesting part here is to, to then, of course, ask, well, how big is this effect? And just looking at the numbers for electricity generation in 2021, the impact is quite big. So Russia has represented some 40 to 50 percent of gas imports to Europe and actually has represented some some 50 percent of coal imports as well when it comes to the gas and, and coal inputs in, into Europe's uh, electricity generation. Then looking at, well, how much do we use gas and how much do we use coal? for our electricity generation. It actually ends up with Russia making up some 16% of Europe's total electricity generation. So 16% could say more or less gone. Which is huge, obviously. We know that oil prices tend to move quite a lot, even if there is a 3, 4, 5% reduction in total oil supply worldwide. So this gives you a sense of how much of an impact this has, this has caused. And again, coming back to, to the fact that the price is set by the marginal production of, of electricity, the price for that last kilowatt hour. If we look back over recent years, we could say that Russia used to represent roughly 40% of Europe's gas imports. At the moment, it is down to about 
8%. So the flow has really diminished to a very, very, very low level. Taking those 8% nowadays coming from Russia out of our Europe's total gas needs, where is the rest coming from? Well, the rest is roughly speaking 40% Norway, 10% Algeria and 40% LNG, liquefied natural gas, which is a liquefied form of natural gas, which is transported on ships, uh, which then offload it into terminals. Whereas the ordinary natural gas in gas format is delivered through pipelines. And of course, we're replacing these 40% of gas imports from Russia with instead having to ship the liquefied natural LNG. It has effect on the price. Uh, but it's not only the, the reduced gas supply that has affected electricity prices. We also see some effect from lower than level hydro reservoir levels. We've been mentioning, mentioning a couple of times here the, the importance of the hydroelectrical plants, in, especially Sweden and Norway. And with hydro reservoir levels being actually quite a bit below what they typically are at this, uh, this time of, of the year, uh, we do see an effect from that. But also has to do with the, the highly volatile wind speeds. And most of all, this has to do with wind speeds uh, down in Denmark, which is one of the main producers of uh, wind power. And with wind availability being clearly lower than normal over the past half year, year or so in several parts of Europe, including Denmark, particularly here in the Nordic region, but not least Germany on, on the continent, which has also exacerbated the supply shortage for um, electrical power, of course, in the system. And the volatility of the electricity prices itself is a source of problems. Probably virtually all listeners have seen in the news flow uh, reports about margin calls for participants in electricity markets where there has been a drastic increase in the need to post collateral for all those who are involved in transactions on, on, on the exchange for electricity and particularly those who work with derivatives contracts to lock in longer term supply contracts for example and, and, and fix the prices for those over a longer period of time. When you are a counterpart in a derivatives transaction you always need towards the clearinghouse to post collateral so that the marketplace as such can be certain that you're able to fulfill your obligations. And even if you have a situation where there is a very temporary collapse or spike in the price, that means that the rate of movement in the price itself means that there is suddenly going to be a much bigger need to have a bigger buffer, a reserve, so that the exchange can again tick all the boxes and consider that yes, we are confident that you'll be able to honour your part of the contract. So although prices may not be there forever, it's causing a problem. Exactly. I think it's safe to say that if, if, if we've had anything, it's, it's volatility. It's been extended volatility, meaning that, that this is not just hasn't been temporary over a day liquidity needs but it, it, it's been a prolonged situation which has needed some intervention right indeed and, and that's why even if there is no concern that, that there's going to be an extreme price level on the high or the low side for years and years and years these participants in the markets who who are counterparties in, in these contracts have needed to find the ability to post this collateral and that's why there has been state support in this area in a pretty major way. So there are some extreme examples. There, there is, for example, in France with EDF, Félicité de France, a nationalization where the company will be basically taken private by, by the state. In Germany, Uniper uh, is seeing the German state uh, stepping in to acquire a majority stake in the company, uh, to have themselves as an owner and then solidify the financial profile, of course. And then there's been a wave of state guarantees to those companies needing to post these massively bigger collateral amounts and, and also making available emergency funding from the state. Players who have needed this, uh, some examples are Fortum, Axpo, VNG and, and, and Centrica. Basically extending credit lines, you could say in order to cover these liquidity needs. Yeah, either guarantees or actual credit lines. Yeah. And, and just to give a sense of, of the magnitude, if we take our own home turf in the Nordic region, in Finland and in Sweden, the state commitments here in the form of guarantees mainly correspond to more than 4% of GDP. 
So we're talking big numbers. So we're talking big numbers, and, and we're, we're also talking big numbers not only directly to companies, in this case, the, in each of these countries, in Sweden and Finland with 4% of GDP, but we're also talking about interventions when it comes to, to households, industry, and consumers. Um, so, so here we've seen absolutely massive state support in many, many countries in the Nordics, in Europe. Uh, just as an example, Germany has allocated some 264 billion euros to be available to help out households and, and to help out industry. In the case of Germany, uh, it's about the price cap on the, the price of electricity. But we also, for example, have figures from the UK, which have uh, gone down quite a bit in recent uh, weeks, but are still around the level of, of 100 billion. And also in, in, in France, some 70 billion that has been allocated in order to help and alleviate some of this pain from, uh, from consumers of electricity. And I thought the Germans committing to uh, spending uh, 100 billion euros to build up their armed forces again was a big number. We're talking two and a half times that level just for electricity turmoil support. But if we get back to gas which is kind of a main culprit in this context after all, Europe has made a lot of effort and is well prepared, I think it's fair to say, for this coming winter, having replaced the lost Russian gas imports with LNG, buying into international markets, particularly from uh, the US and and from the Middle East. And gas storage levels in Europe are now at 94% and that's actually higher than they were at this time last year. So you could say that, putting it a little bit bit in simple terms, Europe has paid up dearly to prepare and have ample reserves available for the winter that lies ahead when it comes to gas. Now, that kind of expenditure, having to pay up so much, given the gas prices that we have seen through this year, that has, of course, been a major factor driving up inflation, since energy is an important component in inflation. Indeed it has. Uh, The Nordea macro view here is that uh, this would be reasonably uh, transitional, would be an inflation spike which starts to ease in, in 2024 uh, with a similar development than, than for interest rates. But looking at other figures, there, there are risks here as well. Uh, you mentioned that, that the gas storage levels in Europe are at a level that is typically higher than, than they would be. Looking at figures from the OECD, they've made an analysis where they describe a risk scenario with uh, Europe having a cold winter. And uh, summarily, you could say that this would quite quickly start to eat up these uh, these gas reserves. And if we were to, to end up in a case of having a cold winter, well, this could end up reducing the, the OECD Europe's GDP growth by some 1.3 percentage points and actually contribute to raising the, the inflation in the region by 1.4 percentage points. So this would be then in the case of not having a kind of a standard winter if there's anything like that, but instead of having a cold winter that would eat into gas, uh, gas storage. And that is a fresh analysis by the OECD. And it's also possible to look back to history for some sort of guidance on how energy supply shocks can affect the economy. And the, the examples, I think, which are obvious to kind of highlight here are the oil shock of the 1970s. We had what is usually called the OPEC-1 oil shock in 1973. That was when the Yom Kippur war broke out between Israel and its Arab neighbors. It was a short-lived war, but when it broke out, OPEC introduced an oil embargo against the West, actually prohibiting selected Western countries from being allowed to buy OPEC oil at all. And that particular supply shock drove up the oil price at the time by 300%. And an immediate result was that inflation in the OECD doubled to between 12 and 13%. And then, sadly, very soon after, in 1979, came the second oil shock, the OPEC-2 oil shock. And that was something completely different. That was owing to the revolution in Iran. And when that happened, Iranian oil production fell by nearly 70%, which in turn reduced the 
world oil output by 3-4%. And that in itself pushed up the oil price another 130% from already elevated levels from the first shock. And that pushed inflation in the OECD up even further to around the 14%. Now, today's situation is not identical in any way to this, but it gives a flavor for how these energy supply shocks can have a very big impact, not least on inflation side, which makes it probably quite relevant to at least consider the OECD risk scenario that you mentioned. But as much as uh, both you and I could could spend probably 10 podcasts uh, dis- <laughs> discussing history, at least, <laughs> and especially economic history and everything that has to do with energy, what is Europe doing right now to, you know, in response to the Russian weaponization of gas, oil and coal? What do we have in store ahead? You might not have thought that you, you would say this or you would hear me saying this, but I, I, I would actually describe it as Europe showing a very, very high level of initiative and, and taking forceful, I would even go as far as to say pretty impressive measures to try and respond to this very difficult situation which has arisen. Back in May this year, the EU Commission introduced a plan called Repower EU. And what that is all about, if we, if we sort of just take a summary of the key ingredients in that plan, is for the renewables share target for Europe's electricity generation by 2030 to be increased from previously 40% ambition level up to 45%. And looking at the energy efficiency, how much more you get out of your actual energy use, there used to be an ambition to increase the energy efficiency in the EU compared with 1990 levels by 36%. This also for the year 2030. And that has been increased even further to 39%. So beyond that increased ambition into what I guess you should call the longer term, there are also short-term initiatives to cut here and now oil and gas demand in the EU by 5%. There is, of course, as we've already touched upon, the massive effort throughout this year so far to buy LNG in the world market to replace the lost imports of natural gas from Russia. And the aim for the Repower EU plan is to cut Russian gas imports to the EU by 67% by the end of this year. So in a couple of months, it's going to be down two-thirds compared with the run rate before the invasion of Ukraine. Which is the target, and, and we already know from the data that, that the current imports are down to some, what was it, 5 or 8 percent, compared exactly. to being some 40-45 percent previously. So let's see what the full year number ends up being, but we can say that the visibility of the EU delivering on this is extremely high, given, as you say, what we have already seen in the data up until now. And it's further expected that the Repower EU plan will reduce imports of gas from Russia to zero by 2027. So I would describe this plan as drastic. That means that it's going to cost a lot to actually implement all this. And yes, indeed, that's the case. The EU Commission themselves expect that it's going to be requiring investments of about 210 billion euros. Consider that for a moment, 210 billion euros between 2022 and 27. But the good news is that this is already funded. Funding is there. It's a matter of the funding being approved and provided to the relevant projects. Trying to be a bit concrete here. In simple terms, you could say that the, the, the European Union aims to, to more than double uh, its renewable share of electricity generation. So from some 20% in, in 2021 uh, to 45% of the total production uh, in, in 2030. So this uh, renewable energy theme. It, it's not something uh, new for our listeners, I think, but uh, it's not something new for us at, at the very least. And we've explored this in, in three earlier uh, Nordic On Your Mind reports back in 2020 and, and also in, in 2022. And I think one of the strong conclusions from everything that is going on right now in the world is that the case for this transition is even stronger than we would have hoped for when we've been writing these reports. So with the already existing sustainability drivers, these have only increased, they've become stronger. And now with this additional geopolitical 
geopolitical dimension of eliminating this this previously very high dependence on, on Russia has, of course, made the case extremely strong. Absolutely. Existential, you could argue, even. And to, to keep things concrete and very tangible, looking at the investment outlook to, to sort of reach the goals outlined by the Repower EU plan, we've looked at, for example, analysis from Standard & Poor's. They look at the EU5, the, the big five economies in, in the European Union, in this case, including the UK. And looking at the known projects within electricity generation, what is the outlook for capacity in those uh, seven years? And uh, overall, the expected rise is about 8% on a net basis. And that is entirely driven by a big capacity expansion for wind and solar, which are going to represent the, the real new capacity coming in on a net basis. And that is a net of there being over this 2021 to 27 time period expected net reductions in electric, electric power generation capacity for coal and for nuclear. And this is, of course, a very visible and a very powerful driver for that share you mentioned for the renewable sources growing pretty fast. But this also creates some challenges. doesn't in- indeed. And when you, you have this trajectory of adding so much more renewable energy, what you also have to remember is that, that what we started out talking about in this podcast, which is, you know, how the electrical grid works with the supply side and the demand side. And what's happening is that the expectation is that we will, in Europe, be adding a lot of wind power, a lot of solar power. And now we're talking about these intermittent energy sources, weather-dependent energy sources. And then, of course, it's it's important to remember the, the notion of grid stability and, and to think about what this does to supply and, and, and demand and then how we can mitigate the effects of this. As I mentioned, a hydro hydroelectric plant, you know how much electricity is going to generate, but it's very hard to, to know how much wind power is going to generate because it is very dependent on things that are outside of our own control. Uh, So what is important here is to be able to balance supply and demand. And one case or or one aspect of this is what we mentioned, base load supply. So having a high share of of electricity supply coming from such things as fossil fuels or hydro nuclear. So with then fossil fuels decreasing and hydro seeing quite limited build-outs because we've already built so much, there is also this need perhaps for an extra buffer of renewable energy. You could call it an overcapacity. It could also have to do with the controlling demand, so having a more flexible type of demand. One thing that you could typically do is to... Uh, I know that there are, there are some systems around the world where what you do when the, the electricity price is quite low and when there is an, an oversupply of electricity is that you use this energy to pump up water to higher reservoir levels because what you're doing effectively is storing this energy so that when there is a higher demand and when an energy price increases, you can start letting it through and pump it down instead. Yeah, let it fall out and drive the turbines, which means then that you will generate electricity and, of course, affect the price as well. But it also has to do with other types of flexible demand. You know, it could be as easy as uh, charging your car during the night, more large-scale things. But also storage, having batteries, or or, uh, even storing it in the form of hydrogen, for example, using energy when it's cheap in order to produce hydrogen, which you can then use in order to supply the grid with electricity when it's needed, but also with with, uh, power electronics uh, solutions. So there are a lot of different aspects here to to this new future of a higher kind of intermittent share of energy production or electricity production. But there is also a lot of exciting things going on in terms of how to, to handle this and how to mitigate the uh, the unwanted effects. And for us here in the Nordic region, I think an inevitable question when reasoning about this is, of course, what role might nuclear power play, given that there has been a lot of controversy and a lot of attention brought to it when we've had nuclear accidents like Fukushima in 2011 and Chernobyl back in 1986, just to mention a couple. And, and there are some issues in the area of nuclear power, not least in that Europe has today 
three ongoing new big nuclear generator projects uh, which are under construction and they are sadly all three big disappointments from an economical point of view with long delays and with big cost overruns. So we're talking costs ending up the way it looks right now for all three of those projects at somewhere in between two and a half and four times as high as originally anticipated which of course completely changes the calculus for what will the cost of that nuclear power be. But we think it's worth highlighting here that now that the needs are so great and that there is this renewable transition that needs to be made and nuclear power, whatever you might think of it, does have zero carbon dioxide emissions. A more likely avenue for nuclear power would be the next generation of technology, which you could broadly describe as the small modular reactors. Smaller units, which are much more flexible, can be to a great extent produced in factories modularly and then also be used in sites which are more remote, require less space, which have safety advantages in addition to the cost advantages and a lot of flexibility in that you can also ramp up capacity step by step with smaller units being added up rather than having to commit to one huge and very complex project where a lot of things could go wrong. So we think that it's clearly a possibility that small modular reactors could certainly play a role in Europe as well as here in the Nordic region to become part of the new electric power generation capacity that we need. But it's important also to remember that these kinds of projects, when we're talking about nuclear, do have long lead times, even with a simpler, probably better technology. And and it's very unlikely that we would see any sort of significant contribution from new nuclear capacity beyond the three projects which are ongoing in Europe before around 2035. I think it's important to mention here here what you're saying, Yvonne, that even though the nuclear power projects and and the the, the operating plans do bring a lot of good to the electrical grid, it's also important to mention one being the the project uncertainty that you mentioned, but also being the cost aspect of this. Because typically renewable energy such as wind or or solar is quite cheap. So so it's, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens in this area. But on the the notion then of of costs or or rather investments, we've uh, looked at this before. Earlier this year, we, uh, we released a report called CapEx for Saving the World, where we looked at uh, one part of the analysis was that we looked at two reports, one from the IEA and the and one from the OECD, the UN and the World Bank. And these uh, these reports they describe investment needs of between four to seven trillion dollars per year through 2030 in order to reach the Paris Agreement uh, targets for global warming. And just to put this in some kind of context, this is actually more than all the world's listed companies invest in their business every So the expectation from these authorities is that there's going to be a lot of investment requirements. And those numbers are staggering. I mean, they are huge even when comparing with the numbers you mentioned for state support for electricity users in Europe, right? These are huge. And then we need to be aware that those projections, those two reports, where those forecasts were presented were from before the geopolitical dimension came into the picture with Europe suddenly needing to wean itself off dependence on imports of of, of Russian fossil fuels. So if you thought that there was a good visibility for those needs materialising as outlined in those two reports, I I guess you would argue that that visibility is, is even greater today. But that's not all. There is actually even more. And and one such thing is the additional future needs from electricity that we will see in society. Because we do have this renewable energy transition which encompasses sectors such as transport. We will, over the coming decades, see electrification of vehicles, replacing fossil fuel engines with electric engines. That will drive additional electricity demand at the expense of demand for actual fossil fuels being burned in vehicles rather than to generate electricity, but nonetheless. But there is also, just to give one example to bring us back again into our Nordic home turf, the perhaps best example of those very substantial needs that, that will arise, which has to do with renewable energy transition, is what you would 
here many call reindustrialization of the north in Sweden. There is a almost a tsunami of huge industrial projects happening up in the north of Sweden because of the available natural resources in the region, but also because of technological innovations. And just the most striking examples perhaps are the, the fossil-free steel making that is being planned. There are two huge projects there. It's either Hybrid and it's H2 Greenst. And those are two projects intending to produce steel without coal and without any CO2 emissions and also to produce fossil-free hydrogen to be used in that steel manufacturing. Very, very fascinating, cutting-edge technology. But to put things in perspective when it comes to the additional electricity needs in the future, those two green steel making projects alone Hybrid and H2 Green Steel are, according to different sources, expected to, in the long term, require between 55 and 80 terawatt hours of electricity. And how much is that? Is that, that, is that a lot? It's a good question, a very relevant question, and the answer is yes. It's roughly as much as Finland uses every year. So quite a bit of need for higher supply. Add another Nordic country yeah. to the demand curve. Yeah. And, and that's what we're talking about for the fossil-free steel making alone. So adding all that up, you've got the transition, you've got the electrification, you've got making up for aging nuclear, etc. And you've got the reindustrialization with these projects, all together adding up to a very, very substantial need for additional electric power generation capacity. And in all this, of course, uh, you know, we're talking about investments into, into the, the electrical grid, we're talking about power electronics, we're talking about a lot of different aspects to make this work as a whole, right? We are indeed. And if, if, if I ask you, looking at the different possible power sources to generate all this electricity, give me a few words about the different ones which are on the menu, so to speak, without any specific forecasts. What, what are we going to see? So from where, where we are right now in the Nordics, fossil fuels, it's quite a limited source already. And, you know, where could it be in the future? Well, backup power, most likely, or, or just peak load. So when, when there is a crazy demand at a certain point in time. Hydro is absolutely great, but it's already so developed in the Nordic, so there's only so much more you can do. So, so probably quite limited additions in this area. Biomass growth, probably, but still kind of a niche area. When it comes to solar power, we are quite unfortunate, I would say, in the Nordics, that, that even though solar power has become so much better for every, every year that, uh, that passes, it, it's perhaps not an alternative for, for the Nordics in a large scale, especially given, well, everyone knows how, how dark it can get during the winter months, right? So the expectation would then be, of course, very high growth, but from a quite small base. Wind then. So wind power, by far the biggest uh, growth uh, driver in the Nordics. And, and this is where we see, you know, both the aspect of, of costs to produce, but also at least compared to solar. I mean, during the dark winter months, that's when, when the wind's blowing the most. So wind in that sense uh, is quite desirable. And nuclear, uh, it's a tricky one. We see it as a possibility and, and it could add some benefits, but at the same time, you, you don't really know where the political discourse is going to to go. Uh, and you also have, as you mentioned, you want these uncertainties with big nuclear projects. And you also have the cost aspects of, of uh, you know, the renewable energy sources quite often being much cheaper than, uh, than nuclear. So, so the jury is still out, I would say, but it's it's uh, going to be exciting to see what happens. And the one thing we do know is that the Olkilu Auto 3 reactor in Finland will be completed and will be connected to the grid and start generating electricity if the current plan holds in December this year. And it's so big that it's actually going to represent alone for one generator about 14% of Finland's electricity needs from one unit. So, so that is coming because it's already being built. But then the uncertainty would be relating to 
if there are going to be additional projects. Yeah. Trying then to to make sense out of all this, so so trying to summarize the situation and what we can expect going forward. I think it's pretty good with a topic like this, given how complex it is and given how excited we get and find it difficult to restrain ourselves when talking about it. But if we sort of draw a line here, if we want to do a bit of a rat and see what to make of all this, I would try and sum it up something like this. Europe is now well prepared with high gas storage levels, but a potential cold winter would be a risk. So there is a weather factor here which could still cause trouble. The isolation of Russia, given its invasion of the Ukraine, we think could drive a lasting fossil fuel supply squeeze on the global level. Is the world going to be prepared to trade oil and gas with Russia, as was the case before the 24th of February? Probably not. So that is a factor that's going to be part of the bigger picture for a long time. The renewable energy transition, we still believe in every bit as much as we did while we wrote those two earlier in the Only Mind reports on related topics in the spring. Now we've got the geopolitical dimension as well. If anything, we think that this renewable energy transition is going to be even more powerful and even faster compared with what was needed or expected just a few months ago. Policy support from states, even on regional levels, particularly in the form of permits for new projects, mainly on the wind power side, they are needed. And they're needed now. So here things need to happen. The EU has ambitions which have been very clearly expressed, but it needs to be executed to ensure that lead times are shortened for these kinds of projects in order for that contribution to materialize. Wind power will be, we think, the growth engine for additional electric power generation capacity in the Nordic region, for sure. More renewables, as you described earlier, Victor, will inevitably mean that output for electric power will become more volatile compared with what we're used to from the past. Because it's not planned in the sense that nuclear or coal-fired or hydropower is, it is affected by weather conditions and that needs to be managed. But we should all be prepared for electricity pricing to inherently be more volatile in the future than it has been in the past because of the mix of energy sources that we will use. And there is inevitably going to be an investment boom in this renewable transition. And that will include a multitude of areas. The the electric power generation capacity as such, but also various solutions for increasing energy efficiency, and also a lot of solutions needed to help ensure grid stability, and and, and not least the storage part of that, uh, areas such as batteries and hydrogen production. And that, I think, is very important to highlight in the sense that, yes, there are formidable challenges here, It is going to be volatile. We have to get used to higher energy prices, but there's going to be ample business opportunities, massive business opportunities, probably for decades, for all those businesses which can provide part of the solution to all of this. There is so much to be done and so much to be funded, where hopefully also we, a big bank such as Nordea, can can play a role and, and help make sure all this actually happens. So next up is going to be the traditional Christmas edition of the On Your Mind in December, which will be, as always, a summary of this year's highlights. Plenty of those this time around, I think, for us to have a look at. And then after that, I think we might mention already now, our current plans are for a January Nudie On Your Mind, which will be about inflation. Another uh, burning hot topic. Which unfortunately is probably not going to be any less hot come January. So watch out for that. We will be back on both the year's highlights and inflation. Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.